I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller, coming to you from Portland, Oregon. Well, it's another presidential election year, and so what I'm hearing people say is, this is the most important election of my lifetime. And of course it is. 2024 is probably the most important election of your lifetime. So was 2020 and 2016, 2008, 2004, 2000, 1992. They're all important elections. And that's exactly how it's supposed to be in a democracy. Every election really is the most important election of your lifetime. It really does decide who's going to set the agenda, who's going to set the tone, who's going to bring us into the future for the next two to four years. So when you hear people say, this is the most important election of my lifetime, Don't think, well, you say that every time because, in fact, they do say it every time, or at least a lot of the times, and that's a good thing. When I think about most important elections of my lifetime, it makes me think about civic engagement, the idea that people ought to be interested in what's going on. And so, in fact, the more people you see pulling out their hair and being afraid and saying, this is the most important election of my lifetime and things could really change and the consequences of this are drastic, that is a form of engagement. One of the things that has happened over the last decade is despite the fact that there's a lot of fear going around, there's also a lot of energy, a lot of engagement, a lot of people voting, protesting, paying attention, yelling and screaming, sure, but they are engaged. And as I sit here in my cozy, well-protected room in Portland, Oregon, United States of America in the year 2024, I'm thinking about civic engagement and I'm wondering how I should feel about it. Luckily, I have young people to guide me. I've been a college professor for over 30 years, so I've been around youthful outrage, naive optimism, fear, hope, all the full range of powerful, youthful emotions. I've been lucky enough to spend my entire adult life around young people who are highly engaged. Outraged, sure, naively optimistic, lots of the time, but they are very engaged, very concerned, and in a lot of cases, terrified, but in a lot of cases, very hopeful. That combination of perspectives and feelings really has kept me going through my study of American politics, which I'll admit, if it weren't for that youthful energy, probably would have ground me down after three full decades. I say all this by way of introduction to my special episode, which was actually produced by one of my students. I taught a class in political podcasting last fall, and I had my students conduct an interview and construct a segment around it to try to inform an audience about something that they were passionate about. 
This particular episode was a piece of podcasting that I just couldn't leave in the classroom. I had to bring it out here to the wider audience of the Pothole Problem podcast. Juriel, who grew up in Alaska, interviews one of her teachers from high school, a very influential person, and as you'll hear in the interview, a pretty amazing person. Rather than say too much about this episode and maybe ruin it for you and wreck the wonderful work that my student has done, I'm just going to play it whole, and here it goes. Joriel Livingston, and you're listening to a podcast episode written, produced, and recorded by myself in November 2023. According to a November 2023 poll by the Pew Research Center, a nonpartisan fact tank that conducts and collects public opinion polls and research, only about 44% of respondents know the duration of a full term in the Senate, and only 40% know who chooses the president if the Electoral College is tied. In another Pew Research poll from July 2020, Americans that primarily got their news information from social media were less likely to provide the correct answers to 29 questions based on a range of current events. Let's acknowledge that these findings are really bad. Americans aren't as literate politically as they should be. So why is that? What leads a large share of the American public to be so uninformed about their government, its activities, and even basic facts about its structure and functions? It is almost a cliche to point out that the decline of civic education in the United States over the last 50 to 60 years is likely responsible for at least some of our current political problems. Let's consider where civics is taught, if at all, to students today, typically in a class or two during high school and not always a requirement to graduate depending on which state they live in. Anecdotally, I can recall that even despite my fantastic civic education in my senior year of high school, It was limited and the primary subject emphasis from elementary school all the way to high school was STEM. My friends and peers in our civics education class often lamented that our shared interest and passion for writing and analysis skills were undervalued by the messaging we'd received from our earliest days in public education, that STEM is what matters and everything else is marginal. The overwhelming emphasis on STEM to the specific exclusion of subjects like social studies, history, and writing classes have in my view contributed to our current situation in which high school students aren't prepared enough to be engaged voting citizens in our democratic republic. Political and media literacy when taught comprehensively has the potential to create more informed and engaged citizens. So how can we achieve this? For the high school level, I was taught under one of these programs the We the People, the Citizen, and the Constitution National Finals, sponsored by the Center for Civic Education. Students read and learn about the Constitution and apply what they learn through spirited, structured discussions and debates that culminate in a local, state, and national competition. This program teaches students about the value of being civically engaged and passionate about the issues they care about. Crucially, It provides an excellent way for students to critically analyze what they see and hear coming from politicians at all levels of government so that they can make informed decisions about who to vote for and support. My interview with Amy Galloway, my high school teacher who taught this class, dives into the state of civics education and public education in Alaska, where I was born and raised. Together, we discuss how Alaska can do better for students and what she's thinking about in the last year of her 25-year career as an educator. I think you'll like the interview. Hello, good morning. Today I have the honor to speak with 
Amy Galway, an experienced educator in Fairbanks, Alaska, who's the recipient of the 2020 Alaska Teacher of the Year Award and is a teacher mentor for the We the People Civics Education Program at West Valley High School. For full disclosure, Amy Galway taught me in this program at West Valley when I was a high school senior. Now, Amy, as a junior in college at Portland State University, I feel really honored to interview you. And let's begin. What inspires you as an educator? Thank you, Joriel. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you for asking me to do this. It's uh, it's when you say what inspires me, um, it's something like this. It's something like when my students go out and I like to say, go out and save the Republic. It's something like when my students um, take what they learned inside my classroom, outside the classroom from their families and their communities, and then they put it to work in a way that helps make our communities whole. And so seeing you do this, you wanting to come back and connect about civic education and know how much it matters, that's it. That is everything for me. So thank you. That thank you. is what inspires me. I'm really glad to hear that. One thing I've wondered here is, did you always have a desire to teach or just was it one interest among others? That's a great question. Um, no, I never had a desire to teach until I was about 20, I guess I was 28. Um, I was an archaeologist and I was working for the National Park Service um, in Wrangell St. Elias National Park and I needed a winter job. And I got a job as um, a teacher aide in Glen Allen Middle School so I could have health benefits and some pay. And it changed my life. I saw in the matter, I would say the first six months there, that what teachers do in public schools is clearly the most powerful way to show young people that their voice matters. And I didn't even know that I didn't know that as a teenager and that that's what I wanted to do with my life. So teaching really just found me, I like to say. You know, as someone who is and has been an educator in Alaska for, I guess, roughly 20 years now, and I believe in your last year of teaching, which is impossible for me to fathom, by the way. <laughs> Um, how do you think about the current state of public education in Alaska? What is your feelings and thoughts about that? So this is my 25th year teaching. And like you, I cannot fathom doing anything. <laughs> so I'm quite terrified, uh, even though I know it's time. Um, so the state of public education in Alaska is crisis. We are in a crisis. We've been in a crisis for at least eight years, but I think that it was only seen in rural Alaska. So when we talk about public education in Alaska, we have to talk about this apartheid. It's too strong a word, but the urban rural chasm between schools in rural areas, in villages, whether indigenous or non-indigenous off the road system, and schools on the road system in urban areas that have property tax dollars to help, it is night and day. And so 
for years, we have had a teacher shortage, a teacher educator crisis in rural areas, but it wasn't noted as noticeable and people weren't talking about it because I would say people with, who had power to change it and people voting who have power to change it just didn't really emphasize it. Now that teacher shortage and crisis has hit everywhere, including West Valley High School, which is one of the best high schools in the state where we can't fill teaching positions. And now everybody is like, oh, we're in, we're in crisis. And I think what's concerning the most is it's not just that we don't have teachers in classrooms. It's that we don't have quality teachers in classrooms. And the solution from the state of Alaska and from many school districts is lowering the bar to become a teacher. So now we have people teaching in classrooms across the state who never went through a teaching program or who are concurrently going through a teaching program. And we're seeing these, they're called emergency certified teachers through no fault of their own, like thank you to them for stepping up, but they don't have the support needed to be a teacher. Being a teacher is one of the most challenging jobs out there. You can look up any research about the number of decisions made in a day, about how we don't just teach content, we teach students. And after COVID, the number of mental health issues that students are facing is, it seems so much higher. So when you get teachers in classrooms who weren't really trained to teach students, of the 21st century, you just have a recipe for disaster. So we're in crisis because we don't have enough staffing. We're in crisis because teachers who have been in the profession, like me for a while, who could stay, we're leaving because we are not getting the support we need. We're not getting the funding we need. Our class sizes are going up. Our resources continue to go down because we don't get increases in funding. And I would say the last piece is the way education, public education is vilified. We don't feel safe. Many teachers don't feel safe, supported, or seen in their classrooms. All of this transfers to students. I heard a representative from the state of Connecticut. She um, was a teacher of the year. I can't think of her name right now, but she was a teacher of the year. She is currently a representative in, in U.S. Congress. I know to our listeners, the representative that Amy Galloway is referring to here is Representative Johanna Hayes of Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. And I heard her speak and she said, if we want to empower students, we have to empower the people who teach them. And so students are suffering because their teachers and their educators are suffering. It's a really, really comprehensive sort of summary of everything that's going on in Alaska. And of course, you know, I think that that's clearly connected to what's like this is part of a nationwide cluster of catastrophes if you may say if we may say that that. cluster Um, of catastrophes i love that um and this has been you know in motion for probably i think probably my entire life for our listeners i'm only i just turned 22 so this is not like this has been going on for a, a while something that my boyfriend and I have spoken about is that we think that we are kind of part of the last generation of students who got a decent public education in the places where we grew up. He grew up here in Portland, Oregon, where I am based in. 
Um, and I, of course, grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. And one thing that we have, you know, observed is just that there's no, uh, the sense of quality is visibly diminished. I mean, students can see it, the teachers are feeling it, the higher ups seem kind of disconnected from it. And then the parents obviously can see what's going on. Although the, you know, that brings me to one of my questions that I have here for you, which is that, so a lot of people are concerned about public education for many different reasons. Conversations about what should be taught in schools have had a huge influence uh, in recent federal elections, as well as local elections this year in Fairbanks. What do you think of this development in terms of the what subjects should be should be taught in school, or who has the authority to make these kinds of decisions, or what educators' uh, role should be in shaping curricula? Very comprehensive question. Try and get at it quickly. Um, I guess I want to start with the current rhetoric and dialogue around public education is a concerted and planned attack on public education from extreme right-wing actors, per se. I, Steve Bannon quite literally posted and like talked about it in a podcast, posted in articles, the way to win the culture wars is to take over school boards. And so what I see is I see bad faith people who don't have the best interest of truly educating all students using our classrooms as culture war battlegrounds. And it's absolutely disheartening. And it's not just disheartening. I think it's terrifying. I have taught for 25 years. I have taught in in Nupiak village in New York City, Alaska. I have taught in a Russian old believer village down in Vaznesenka. And I have taught in Fairbanks in a middle school and a high school. And I always have, I have always had my own personal beliefs as everybody does, but quality educators understand that we are here to teach students how to think and not what to think. My concern with this attack, this rhetorical attack, as well as absolute outright frontal assault on public education by banning books, by attacking LGBT students and staff, by really investigating and attacking teachers by saying they must show everything they teach and this implication that we are indoctrinating students because we're teaching students to think and exposing them to things that their families or community may not agree with, I think is outright unconscionable. And it's certainly not in the best interest of students. And it's not for students. It's to score culture war points. Now, I will be clear that there is one thing that I think we all agree on. And I know no matter who I'm across the table from, whether it's the farthest right wing school board member or it's a farthest left wing school board member, one thing is very true. We all very genuinely want our kids to learn, to be safe and to succeed. We very much want that. And I see that and I can see that in the eyes of the people who sometimes I sit across the table from who want to make me into an enemy. And so I know we all want students to learn to be successful and nobody wants kids to hurt. I get that. The problem is because these people 
who are attacking education are not in schools. They're not sitting at the table with kids who are crying because they want to be seen for who they are, not for what's on their birth certificate, because they want to be able to be seen and valued as they are, even if they're not, that's not happening at home. Folks who aren't in the classroom, who don't see this day in and day out, they don't understand how much their rhetoric hurts kids. And I know that it's in best interest, but it is harming our country. It is harming our kids and it's harming our communities. And so I guess what I guess my thoughts on this is I 100% have hope that it is not going to stay this way forever, that our country, as has been said many times, the arc of history is long and justice will prevail. And we have, and the reason I know that is because I see students every day fighting back against censorship and against discrimination and bigotry. For example, in Alaska, in the Matsuboro School District, students are organizing against a school board that is authoritarian, that has stripped powers from a student member, that essentially has meetings in secret. They had a walkout on Tuesday and they had over 100 students in Fairbanks on our little street corner jewelry, like the, the, the street corner where everybody protests. We had 10 students, 10 to 12 students standing there in solidarity with the Matsu students, as well as many adults who were there saying, you will not take our schools from us. So while you may think you maybe were the end of really quality public education, I think it's just a hiatus. And because of students like you who are going to go out and become school board members and become legislators and teachers and voters, we're going to take back our schools for students. I absolutely love to hear that. I also read uh, that story I saw it on social media from uh, you know students in the Matsu school district uh, organizing against it. I love to see it. I think it's important for students to show uh, and really, you know, flex their muscle, which is their voices, ha- showing that there is resistance. I mean, that is essential. One thing that I often think about is that the work that I did in high school, you know, with my school's GSA and, you know, being in leadership with that and my friends being in leadership there, what I find just really difficult to wrap my head around is that that work that was happening as recently as January of 2020 is now it's, I didn't expect it to materialize this quickly. And it was kind of paused a little bit by the pandemic, but then, you know, once schools opened up again, it very much returned. And like you said, it is a, it is a coordinated full frontal assault on public education. Do you think we, the people is the best format for civic education for high schoolers or are there other kinds of programs or civics curricula available that you would want to try? In addition to that, like what are some of the disadvantages and advantages of the We the People format for civic education for high schoolers? That's such a great question. And so I know you're asking about high school, but I'm going to just dip in a little bit and I'm going to say, I love the We the People program and I will talk about that, but it's my academic and experiential belief that civics education is K-12 and multi-pronged. 
And I'm teaching a class right now on civics and literacy in the classroom for teachers. And, you know, we started day one with the goal of public schools is to create citizens, to create engaged, active, empowered, and empathetic citizens. And so civics and civic education is in everything we do from the elementary teacher who has a class meeting or who you know, to the principal who sits down with two students who had a fight and who teaches them how to apologize and move forward and not do the same thing again. Civics is the same as reading and writing. It's the same as literacy. It's everywhere. It runs like an operating system around everything we do, or at least it should. And so civics education is in everything. Unfortunately, because of poor policymakers over the last 50, 60 years, civics education has been relegated to government and learning about government. And then it's been relegated to one class in a high school where it used to be taught multiple courses throughout, you know, three or four times throughout a student's career in public high school, in elementary, in middle school, in high school. So is a We the People class one semester or one year in high school adequate? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Is one government class adequate? Absolutely not. That said, the approach by We the People, I think, is one of the most effective when it's married and combined with multiple other programs. And that's the great thing about We the People is it's a curriculum that focuses heavily on students really understanding the Constitution and the history so that we don't have to take other people's word for what's in the Constitution. Like, you've read it, you know, you and and so you know, it's in the Constitution, but you also know those founding principles, things like majority rule with the protection of minority rights, power, and how power should be allocated, how power should be restrained, right? Those big topics. So what We the People does is kind of take us back to our founding roots, where people who may diametrically be opposed to each other are going to sit in civil dialogue with each other with parameters so that civil discourse will be in place with an idea of creating a greater level of understanding instead of trying to own somebody. And this is the other great thing about We the People. It's a team sport. Democracy is a team sport. It is not done in isolation. So when We the People, when you do it in these unit teams with each other and, you know, high school students, you guys hate group projects. You're like, oh, this is where, you know, But when you can really collaborate and get something done as a team, you can then see, oh, democracy is like that. Like, I can't do it on my own. Like, I have to work with other people because when I try and do it on my own, oh, that's authoritarianism. Oh, okay. So I think besides the content, We the People teaches those dispositions in a way that sometimes are invisible to students like those dispositions of collaboration and other things. But I would say it's not enough. It always happens to happen in conjunction. Like, do you remember the candidate forum? Yes. Right. So our candidate forum, that is a must. Every high school should be doing a candidate forum. Here's my call to action. Every high school in the United States of America should be doing a candidate forum. That is a great way to get students engaged real life, right? The key is get students in the room with the people who hold the positions of power. So they see, every kid sees, every 
kids sees, no matter their socioeconomic background, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, their race, their religion, every kid sees they belong in that room. They belong at that table. And I think that's what things like We the People and candidate forums and getting students out doing, I think that's what that does. I feel like civics education and, you know, particularly the way that I was taught it by you, really, it's how to be a person in a democracy, how to interact with other human beings as for one on one level, it's your your fellow human, but it's also a fellow voter, a fellow person in the community, a person who is affecting change, but is also being affected by, you know, the policies that are in place by the people who are making the policies. That's what civics is. And I really appreciate that, you know, you clarify, this is comprehensive. It does not start at the end of high school. (laughs) At least it shouldn't. It most definitely shouldn't. I think that that that's so important. One thing I just want to say here before we start wrapping this up is I just wanted to ask you, um, so we've just had local elections in Fairbanks for the school board and borough assembly. Um, What are some of your thoughts on the results? I will say I voted. What were your uh, thoughts on the results here? Well, first of all, thank you for voting. I mean, I know you were going to vote, but thank you for voting. I always like, thank you, thank you, thank you. All the people who went before you were in that booth with you, thanking you. So I guess my thoughts are really, my thoughts and feelings are mixed on the results. Voter turnout was still dramatically low. I think we ended in the like 20, 21-ish area once we've counted all the absentee. So that's, it seems that no matter what folks do, we don't seem to break like 25%. I think that when I look at the school board and borough assembly as somebody who is actively engaged in trying to get pro-public education candidates elected, we were very pleased. All of the candidates that NEA Alaska endorsed won, which never happens. Like I have never in my life in Alaska had a clean sweep. I don't know if in my life ever I've had a clean sweep. So it was kind of disorienting. I was like, did we we want all of them? And so then, of course, I was ecstatic to have candidates that are going to hopefully increase education funding and candidates who are going to put the focus back on how do we help teachers and how do we focus on all students and ratchet down the negative culture war rhetoric. It's going to, I mean, hopefully the culture wars are going to kind of be out of our schools now, at least for a little bit. Um, and so I'm pleased about that. I, the, the rhetoric during the campaign was pretty ugly. So that was not surprising, but sad. I guess my big concern is my experience is a bunch of pendulum swings in Fairbanks. We had a red wave last year. Before that, it was just kind of purple, purple. Before that, it was blue, blue wave. So my wonder is, did we finally do something differently? Are the demographics changing? Did something or were progressives just more mad? And so they turned out to vote. And next year conservatives will be more angry and they'll turn out more. So I would feel better about the election if I knew that it felt a little bit more permanent or if that the voter turnout was higher. But I think my favorite, like my takeaway from these local elections was that I heard students talking about it more than I really ever have. At parent-teacher conferences, I counted three parents said, 
I didn't know how to vote for, but my student knew and they shared with me who they would vote for. And so the kids knew ninth graders, ninth graders and 12th graders, like they were really engaged. And I know a lot of my former students were voting and regardless of who you all voted for, you're out there doing the work of a democratic republic. That feels like the biggest win ever. Thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for sharing that. That warms my heart. I am so happy to hear about young people, ninth graders, educating their parents on who they would vote for if they could. I think that's amazing. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much, Amy Galloway, for your time. I loved hearing what you have to say. Uh, I wish this could go on for two more hours. So thank you so much. I loved hearing from you and talk to you soon. You are one of my favorite teachers. So I want to thank you. Thank you so much. Isn't Amy awesome? She's so thoughtful and I knew her perspective on this would be interesting and provide a lot of insight. I really enjoyed learning in that class and getting to know the Constitution on a deeper level. However, civics education isn't just about educating students with the basics of the Constitution. Civics connects students to each other and their community and empowers them to know what candidates for public office mean when they make certain promises to the electorate. Civic education in high school is what led me to make the decision to vote in every election I'm eligible. And to my best recollection, I haven't missed a single one yet. Every time there's a local, state, or federal election, I remind my friends how important it is to vote, and I do my best to connect them with resources on how to vote absentee, when early voting begins, and the relevant deadlines that they need to meet in order to vote. Speaking of voting, you heard towards the end of my interview that there were local elections in Fairbanks, specifically for the school board and the borough assembly. All of the pro-public education candidates won. I was surprised about the results, as was Amy. The results mean that public education in Fairbanks, at least until the next school board election, will not have the MAGA-style culture war influence disrupting the work of the school board. The results mean that the essential work that LGBTQ student-led clubs will resume at full capacity and will have a welcomed reception among the majority of the school board. Some of that work includes creating and giving presentations to students and staff to improve the school environment for LGBTQ students, with a particular focus on how teachers can interrupt bullying and harassment. Under a previous superintendent and school board, their work was halted completely and the school environment had notably worsened. So to see their work continue brings me a lot of joy, especially as a former leader of this club in high school. Interestingly, it appears that the smattering of elections from November 7th, 2023, generally followed the same trend that emerged in Fairbanks. Voters rejected anti-abortion and anti-public education candidates that emphasized classrooms as culture war battlegrounds. To name a few of their biggest victories, Democrats secured their majority on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, gained full control of the Virginia legislature, achieved passage of two Ohio ballot measures to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution and legalize cannabis, and incumbent Democratic Governor Andy Bashir won re-election in Kentucky. This trend included numerous school board elections across the country as well. So it's pretty clear that even in off-year, typically low turnout elections, 
voters are still making their views heard, particularly regarding the animated potency against the Dobbs decision overturning Roe. When students are politically engaged, their activism becomes an exercise of civic duty, as it is an essential part of being a citizen. Expressing disapproval through civil disobedience and nonviolent protest are just two manifestations of a robust civic education. Part of what I did in high school and what students at my high school in Alaska are currently doing is both an educational and activist approach to making change happen. Inside of school, they're informing staff and students about how to show basic decency to each other and how to speak up when bullying and harassment are inflicted on other students. Outside of school, they're meeting with state legislators representing Interior Alaska in response to anti-LGBTQ legislation proposed by the allies of Alaska's Governor Dunleavy in the legislature and writing letters to the editor in local newspapers. In addition to the work being done in Fairbanks, we've seen student walkouts in Virginia in response to the Youngkin administration's proposed plans to roll back the rights of LGBTQ+, and specifically trans students in particular. Student activism as a form of expressing disapproval and resistance against reactionary and conservative centers of power, whether those be local school boards, city councils, and even entire state legislatures, is an indispensable part of using the lessons of civic education to build a more inclusive and democratic society. At the beginning, I mentioned that a lot of people trace the initial decline of civic education in the United States to somewhere beginning in the 1960s and 1970s. This period was a time of a lot of social change based on many different marginalized groups organizing for the recognition of their civil rights. At the foundation of many of these marginalized groups' organizational power was student groups exercising the lessons of a robust civic education to demand recognition of their rights and demonstrating resistance against pervasive discrimination. Student activism, which came in many forms such as sit-ins, walkouts, protests on and off campuses, teach-ins, and dissemination of literature educating their peers, about the urgency of acting to make change happen are all supported and strengthened by a strong sense of community through civic education. And so it is no surprise that the conservative reaction against these student movements for civil rights targeted the very foundation of their organizational power, the civic education that student activists received. I see this slow descent of civic education over the last several decades as part of a project to specifically undermine student activism. Though it was not overnight, by the time I'd entered public school, civic education had been thoroughly hollowed out with the lone exceptions of my We the People class in high school. This is not to say I learned nothing prior, but that the emphasis and duration of class time devoted to civics before high school, for me, was not significant. Today, a lot of student activism on a variety of issues such as gun violence, anti-LGBTQ discrimination, climate change, and reproductive autonomy all employ different strategies and each have different degrees of success. Part of the success of student activism in the 1960s was how organized they were in reaching specific goals and building relationships across different groups to strengthen those bonds when they were tested by the state. The lesson for student activism today is to recognize that building those relationships for organizing, as difficult as that can be because it isn't easy, 
is really essential to achieving the goals they want and building change that lasts. That last part, building change that lasts, is partly about making the right kind of investments. Making civic education central to public education is a way to reinforce our understanding of each other as citizens responsible to one another. We are not just collections of individuals or atoms in space. We are communities of people that have a shared responsibility to look out for each other. And in order to do that, it requires acting when injustices are inflicted. And if you're in a position to do so, using your position to help or defend someone else. Civic education is not just learning about the government and voting and how it all works. It is about showing you your power as a person in a democratic society. So please use it. There are a lot of people right now who need you to and you haven't even met them. Mm -hmm.